I want to kind of talk about, uh, give a little bit of background on this. Remember Bob Dylan? He's still around. Uh, in about 1979, um, Bob Dylan announced his conversion to Christ with a, a new album that he, he recorded called Slow Train Coming. It featured um, this Grammy Award winning uh, song, Gotta Serve Somebody. It was a song that expressed uh, that new Christians, that his uh, understanding as a new Christian of how life really works. Dylan sang of the fact that life involves service either to Satan or to the Lord. Now, um, you could speculate on where, where Bob Dylan is kind of today. I, I don't know. But, but I know that, that the, the words of that song still ring true, um, really almost 40 years later. Many people think they serve only themselves. Their highest good is their own pleasure and their own satisfaction. Yet, as Dylan discovered, we're all servants of another. I read this. We delude ourselves if we think we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. You recognize those words? Remember the, the poem Invictus that Timothy McVeigh wanted read or read himself at his execution? I'm thinking, that, you know, when I heard that and read it in the paper and all that, I, I remember thinking... Has anything been farther from the truth for a guy to speak on his deathbed? Especially one who had been a mass murderer like McVeigh was. Well, the truth is we don't serve ourselves, do we? In fact, if we do, we're probably setting ourselves up for a life that's kind of a miserable life. Now, as we get into chapter 6, really a lot in the, in the book of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to use... Um, this passage and others talking a lot using the, the metaphor of a slave and a master to refer to our relationship really with both sin and our Savior. So it's interesting. He'll talk about slavery and, 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 uh, and being a mastered by sin, but he's also going to make the case that, that that happens, by the way, but he's going to make the case that who we need to be mastered by is the Savior. Now, what you and I need to understand when, um, when the Apostle Paul talks about slavery, it was common in his day, uh, unlike our day, but it was a common in his day, but you also need to understand that it was a little more of a benign setup in, um, in ancient Rome than, um, than, it, than you and I think about when we think about the colonial period up to uh, post-Civil War America. It wasn't based on race. Slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't based on race. It wasn't based on, uh, it literally had a lot to do with, with poverty and economics. Uh, sometimes had to do with um, uh, those kinds of things. And so while it wasn't perfect and it wasn't, still wasn't good, um, it, it doesn't rival what happened uh, in this country and other countries in, in the 1800s. So uh, when you think of that, there's going to be a common theme. In other words, there was a master who had um, authority over, and there was a slave, and the master had, um, had um, complete authority over the slave to serve. Um, 
the will of the master was primary and the slave had to obey. So we've got those common themes, but it wasn't quite the same as it, as it was uh, 200 some years ago in this country. So uh, don't get too hung up on that as, because we're going to use that metaphor a lot today. Now, I ask a couple of questions here, and Paul's going to ask a couple of rhetorical questions. What does it mean to really live? Do you think most people in the world really understand this concept? Does most of the world really know how life works? If not, where do you think we can find those answers? Now, I find that really intriguing because most of my life has been spent trying to discover and convey how life really works. Okay, Larry, I saw you walk in. Can you do a Bob Dylan Im imitation? <laughs> okay, I just thought between you and me we could come up with a little bit of Bob Dylan. Okay. Huh? What? Okay, all right, sorry. Just got to pick on my buddy back there. Now, Romans 6, let's have somebody read the first four verses. Can we do that? Okay, Paul is going to begin this chapter, and by the way, can, can you pray and pay attention at the same time? Because I, I really need the Lord's help to get through this in a cogent way today. Uh, Paul's going to begin with some, um, some rhetorical questions here, a couple of them. Um, the first one being, in my Bible, it says, what should we say then? Are we to, second question, are we to continue? continue in sin so that grace may increase. Now, what, what Paul is using here is a technique known as reduction to the absurd. Okay, so put the word absurd in that first blank there. Paul's second question here follows an absurd logic. The technique that he's using here um, is, is a means by which you boil down an argument um, by using rhetorical questions where uh, by the time you're at the end of, of this, this logic, uh, following that thought would seem to be kind of crazy or at least absurd. All right? So let me give you the questions he's going to ask here. Okay? It, it really, they're, they're, I've got three questions kind of encapsulated within this little piece of rhetoric. Okay? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, that's his question. Now, first of all, so it, so it follows the logic here. All right? Since forgiveness is a sign of grace, okay, good thing, right? Since forgiveness is a sign of grace, and since grace is a good thing, okay, and both of us are agreeing, right? He's got us where he wants us, okay? Since forgiveness is a sign of grace, and since grace is a good thing, then why not sin more? Now, I love the fact that you're giggling about that. 
And Paul's original audience, I hope, did too, although I'm not so sure. Okay? Uh, since uh, forgiveness is a sign of grace, and grace is a good thing, then why not sin all the more? Let's just get it out there. The, the idea is more sin equals more grace, right? It's just, it is absurd to think about. Now, the problem is, not in logic, the, because that is not logical. I mean, really, we're using logic there to, to disprove this thing. Paul certainly is. The problem is not in the, with the logic. The problem is with practice, with the way we live, and certainly the way these people lived. Now, here's where I'm really going to need you to follow me and pray for me at the same time if you can do that. Paul is really dealing here. He's demanding that we take a sober look at continuing sin. Continuing sin. He's going to use some of the strongest language in all of his letters. All of, you know, Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament. He's going to use some of the strongest language in all of the New Testament, certainly in all of his writing, and he wrote more than half of it, in verse uh, 2 here. His answer to his own questions. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What is his answer in your Bible? God forbid. What else did I hear? By no means. Is that NIV probably? Okay. By no means. Mine is, uh, in mine it says, may it never be. Anybody else got something besides those three things? I should hope not. Oh, I, and you've got to say it with that kind of in, in um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, in, indignance, I think is the word I'm looking Say it indignantly. Yeah. Um, that kind of an idea. He's talking here about continuing sin. May it never be. Um, does the assurance of forgiveness make sin less serious? That's kind of the question that's hanging out there. I um, pulled out a book out of, out of my library this week. This is, uh, you gotta, you got to love a, 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 a theologian whose first name is Cornelius. This is Neil Platinga, Cornelius Platinga. He writes a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Uh, those of you in Bible study probably heard me excerpt this a couple of things. Here's what he says. Um, Anyone who tries to recover the knowledge of sin these days must overcome long odds. To put it mildly, modern consciousness does not encourage moral reproach. In particular, it doesn't encourage um, self-reproach. Preachers mumble about sin. The other traditional custodians of moral awareness often ignore, trivialize, or evade it. He goes on to say the word sin now finds its home mostly on dessert menus. <laughs> Peanut butter binge. Death by chocolate. The new measure for sin is caloric, he says. In one of the best known and most widely reproduced editorials on morality in the, in the 1990s, 
The Wall Street Journal recounted a, a number of public sex scandals. Anita Hill's abuse of charges against Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, Magic Johnson's confession that his HIV infection was a byproduct of promiscuous sexual athleticism, William Kennedy Smith's grimy testimony in his Palm Beach rape, rape trial. Then the journal said, this is good, hard, good. The United States has a drug problem and a high school sex problem and a welfare problem and an AIDS problem and a rape problem. None of this will go away until more people in positions of responsibility are willing to come forward and explain in frankly moral terms that some of the things people do nowadays are wrong. <laughs> Imagine that. Remarkably, the Wall Street Journal strongly implied that it was high time we got the word sin out of mothballs and began to use it again and to mean it. Platinga in another place is going to say, in, in the biblical view, we, we not only sin because we're ignorant, but we're ignorant because we sin. Now that's good, strong. I wish I'd have thought of that. We not only sin because we're ignorant. We're ignorant because we sin. There's this pattern. And unfortunately, in the way what Paul's going after here, unfortunately, he's dealing with it within the life of the church. The people in the church who have, have kind of gotten to the point where they think, um, well, I'm forgiven, so it's not really a problem. Live however you need to or want to. Um, and the problem is there's no distinction between them and the pagans around them. Now that, by the way, is no longer a problem in our day, right? <laughs> He's asking us to take a really sober look here at sin in our lives. Now I want us to look at a couple of passages as we, as we get to... Uh, to verse 3. But somebody find 1 Peter 3.21. Who'll get that one? Looking for a hand. Oh, th uh, John. Great. Cindy, did I see your hand? I'll, I'll let you go to Luke 3.3. 3. John's got the hard one to find. All right, now. The rhetorical question here that he asked, he asked another one in verse 3, Okay. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? It may not, this question may not have exactly an obvious answer. An obvious answer. Baptism is supposed to be some kind of a death. Now let's see what, um, let's see what Peter says about it and what Jesus says about it in Luke 3. Uh, 1 Peter 3.21, John. Now, in order for a resurrection to take place, what first has to take place? A death. Okay? Uh, by the way, in apologetics, if you're interested in apologetics, one of the things you begin to prove uh, on the way to proving the resurrection is you begin to prove that Jesus actually died, that he didn't just faint on the cross. Okay? 
In order for there to be a resurrection, there of necessity has to be a death. In order for there to be a resurrection in my life, in baptism, that being buried to sin and alive to Christ, there's got to be a death here. And the idea here is that this, the death is a death to sin. We're going to kind of deal with this in just a second. Okay, Luke 3.3, 3. let's see what Jesus says about it. Isn't that interesting? Baptism wasn't for cleansing, although it was a kind of cleansing. What did the Bible say Jesus began to preach and John began to preach as baptism for what? Repentance, forgiveness of sin, a new life. It kind of seems obvious here. Now, my statement in verse 4 is this. Only dead people are buried. Now, by the way, if it happens otherwise, it's not a good thing, okay? Only dead people are buried. So I've got to ask here, who has died in verse 4? Let's look at verse 4 again. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So, by the way, um, if you were uh, as a kid sprinkled or uh, dipped or some other method, uh, that's okay. We're not going to challenge that baptism, but it's implying here immersion as the type of baptism they're talking about. So, so don't get lost there. All right. If so, he's saying here. Let's go back to verse four. We've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. So there's that resurrection. Terry, that's what was symbolized when you and I baptized you well, a year ago maybe? Somewhere in there? A death to an old life rising again to a new, to a new one. Uh, but somebody go over to Colossians 2.12. Read that for us. I'm still asking the question, who died here? So we'll, we'll answer that in a minute. Colossians 2.12, who's got it? So it's kind of all over the New Testament, the idea of being buried and, right, and, and raised again. So who died? Self. That's, that's pretty good. Self. Somebody else, who died? Sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put those two answers together and say what died is the sinful life of the believer. Sin, death, self. Died. Rising again to new life. There ought to be some evidence that's kind of saying here. Um, now, <laughs> I wish Sherman Huff was here today. I don't know if he'd be proud of me for this or not, but at least I'm going to talk for a second about country music. I was going to bring a video in here, and it took too long to play. It takes like five minutes to play anyway. Um, and I couldn't quite get it. Uh, YouTube wouldn't give it to me the right way. And I went to Vimeo. I couldn't get it. Anyway, so, so look it up today. You can, you can get it. I just can't show it up here. Uh, this is Trace Adkins. All right. He does a video with Stephen Baldwin. You, get, you guys know who Stephen Baldwin is? 
uh, Alex's little brother. This is the Christian Baldwin. Okay, I don't know if the rest of them are or not, but Stephen is openly Christian. And he does, they do a song called, they do a video to a, to a Trace Atkins song called Baptize Me in Muddy Water. Really good country song. And uh, during the thing, you can tell that Stephen has lived some kind of life that he's wanting to put behind him. And he meets Trace at a little country church and they walk out back and everybody's gathered at the river. Just the, the picture of this guy you don't know what his background is, but you know he's got some baggage. The picture of him going under that water and breaking back up, you can see it on his face. He's a different guy. Okay? That's the way it should be. The death in baptism, not the act of baptism, in what it represents. The death of my old life. Okay? Okay? It's time to practice. You ready? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Here's where it comes in. You knew it was coming in somewhere. Here we go. Can you say it with me? We're going to say the reference and the reference. Okay, ready? 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. There you go. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I forgot my own pattern. Didn't I? All right. Now, so... He's going to talk here, and we're going to jump ahead to verse 12, all right? Um, actually, somebody read 12, 13, and 14, so we've got that background. Okay, now in the first half, thank you, Steve. In the first half of the book of Romans, so that's where we are. We're still in the first half of it. In the first half of the book of Romans, um, there are three tyrants that are presented. There's one presented here. I'll talk about it in a minute. So, so the word tyrant here means uh, um, it, it, the, the idea of a tyrant is someone reigning over you like a king. Okay? It could be, it could be, a uh, the the other analogy that's kind of woven through here is a slave owner, a master ruling over a slave. It could be a a sovereign king ruling over a subject. Okay, so there's three pictures of it in the first half of Romans. We're going to look at three of them real quick here. These three tyrants. Turn back if you're like me. You don't have to turn back the page. Just look across the page. Somebody read five fourteen. It'll tell us who our first little tyrant is. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking the commands, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Okay, the first tyrant, the first little master, the first little despotic king is death. Death. Death reigning over. Okay exercising its will over us, all right, death. The second one is sin. That's the one we're discussing in this chapter, okay? Um, the, the, so there's a tyrant of death, there's a tyrant of sin, but there's an interesting one yet coming 
um, that we're going to talk about here. And I want you to, I've got them out of order, so let's go back, go to 2.12, that's one, one leaf back in your Bible, 2.12, all right, and let's listen to what he says about the other tyrant. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, that's 2.12. Now let's go to 6.14. All right. Kind of new material here. He's, For sin shall not master over you. There's that tyrant that we already talked about. For you are not under law, but under grace. Okay. And then one more. 7.1, which we haven't gotten to yet. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So that third, it's interesting that the third tyrant, so it, it's kind of easy for me to think of death being a tyrant. We all worry about that. We, we struggle to defeat death, right? Death is a tyrant over me. But he, in this chapter, he's talking about sin reigning over me as a tyrant. And the last one is interesting, the law. The law, the Old Testament law. Paul sees the law as being a tyrant as well. It's interesting. He says, this is a new day, and we're going to kind of, kind of deal with that in the, in the remainder of our time together. Don't let sin exercise authority over your life. That's what the word reign means, exercising authority. Don't let death, don't let sin, and don't let the law, interestingly, because we live under grace. Now, we're going to talk about that. In verse 13, I think he's saying here that I must become completely alive. Look at, look at the verse. If you're reading from the NIV, there's a word that's used three times um, in, in this uh, uh, 13th verse. Somebody read, if you've got the NIV in front of you, read it to us out loud, would you? Hear the word that's in there three times? Don't offer, don't offer, offer. Catch it? Thank you, Paul. Don't offer, don't offer, offer. So it's kind of this idea here. If I want to be alive, um, what is being offered here? Part of me, say my members or or some part of me, I'm offering my, it says, don't offer to sin. Don't offer, but offer your life to God. It presents here um, uh, sin, part of me being offered to sin as a master. Uh, you got to catch the picture in the first part of verse 13 here. You got to catch the picture of, of a, a worshiper bowing on their knees Offering a part of themselves, not to God in the first part of the verse, but to sin as a master. Can I submit to you that we have all at one time in our lives done that in some way? We didn't see it that way. We didn't see it that way. But I bowed at some altar at some point and offered a part of me saying, sin, you are my master. Instead, at the end of the verse, it talks about offering my life, my members, to God. 
it, it, it's really kind of a beautiful concept if you if you don't get stuck in the A part of verse 13. If you go on to verse uh, to to the second half, let me. It, it's going to talk about present uh, your members in, in in my particular translation. Uh, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as alive from the dead. There's that idea again. And your members as instruments of righteousness for God. And then verse 14, for sin shall not be, ma- shall not ma- be master over you. We are to be ruled. We want to be ruled. We've got to kind of get to the place where we are ruled not by sin, not by death, not by the law, but by grace. It's not about which rules we keep, but about which master we serve. Am I going to serve the law? Am I going to serve death? Am I going to serve sin? Wholeheartedly no. I'm going to bet the farm on grace. What a beautiful thought. You know? You ever given thought to the question, why do you do what you do? On the, on the negative side and on the positive side. Let's think on the positive side for a minute. Why do you do what you do? Okay? You guys have been here how long? Coming from Arizona, you've been here how long? Uh-huh. About a year, I was going to say, about a year. And yet you were here volunteering. What night? Was that Thursday night? I can, I've slept since then, but not much. I think it was Thursday night. Was it Tuesday night? Okay. Volunteering, had the T-shirt, the Beast Feast T-shirt on, volunteering, slinging hash. Why do you guys do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Why, why does, Steve, why do you do Seaworth? Why, you know, why do we... There's a reason behind that. Not because some law tells me I've got to do it. Not because I'm afraid to die. Not because there's sin in mastery. He's got grip on me. But because I have been graced by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, that drives me most days. My life is a result of that. Read what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. His life is just captivated by that thought. And it drives his service. Louise, why do you do well, living hope and the other things that you do? There's something else driving that. That's kind of the thought here. Now, let's go on a little bit. I'm just going to read a little bit of the, of the rest of this. Actually, somebody, uh, if you would, pick it up. Eileen, do you mind to read, jump, jump at 17 and read down through 23?
result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, that last verse that Eileen read there has sometimes been called the gospel in miniature. Because it tells you just about everything you need to know. <laughs> 623. Yeah, that's another good one to memorize. Now let, let's go back, because Paul's going to talk here, beginning of verse 17, and some of this others, but, but certainly here. He's going to kind of take a turn here, and he's going to talk about, uh, you once were, but now you are. Formerly you were, but now you are. I love the distinction he makes here. And he's going to say here, beginning of verse 17, that our lives need to be repatterned. Our lives need to be repatterned. That's not easy. I'm going to say something that you're not going to like, probably. Don't quote me, okay? Although I know this is probably going on tape. Conversion is not enough. It's just the beginning. Now, it's the start we all need, right? But our lives have to be repatterned. Um, the Great Commission, Roman, um, sorry, Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Uh, it talks about what we're to go forth doing. You remember, it's the end of Jesus' public ministry, his earthly ministry. He says to the disciples, go you into all the world, make disciples. Teaching them to obey. Repatterning. Okay? That's kind of the issue here. Um, Robert Coleman, who has written um, kind of more on this importantly than probably anybody else, has called this failure to repattern, conversion only and no repatterning, has called this the great omission. Omission. Just thinking that just conversion was enough. I've got to repattern. Here's the equation, verse 18. Freed from sin equals being slaves to righteousness. That's a good thing. Not to save ourselves, but I'm going to serve righteousness. I'm freed now from sin to serve someone else, not to serve myself anymore. In verse 19, Paul's going to be really clear here. I want to read it again from the New American Standard. He's going to say, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Is he being condescending? No. He just wants to be abundantly clear here. Why? Because the stakes are really high. If you fly on a plane very often, you'll recognize that somebody, that there's some folks that, that kind of care about you. They serve on the staff of the plane that you're flying on. And they give you all kinds of instructions at the beginning of that flight designed to save your life. Do you pay attention? Or are you like me? Do you kind of think, uh, yeah, I've been there, heard that. I kind of know about the thing dropping down and, you know, and tightening my seat. You don't know that. I've done this before. This ain't my first rodeo. Okay. But what if, what if they were said to you, and it was honestly true, if they said to you prophetically, this plane in 15 minutes is going to have engine failure, you're going to want to know this. I think I would listen. What do you think? 
Now, what do I do with that mask thing again? You know, uh, uh, I'm sitting on the, I'm sitting on the, uh, on, on the exit aisle. Okay, now how do I get this door open again? You know, that, all that stuff. Paul, that's what the context of what, this is life and death. This is important. He's, he's pressing it here not to be condescending, but because the stakes are really, really high. Here's another equation that comes in verse 20. It's basically this. If I'm free from righteousness, then I've become, that equals being a slave to sin. And he goes on to say in verse 21 and 22, that if I become a slave to sin, that's shame. That's a shameful life, he says. But if I'm a slave to God, that means holiness and eternal life. Then, of course, this beautiful verse 23 talks about wages and it talks about a gift. The wages of sins, what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life. I, uh, you heard me mention a little bit ago, I uh, uh, was invited to the, uh, the Beast Feast. Never come to the Beast Feast before this year. It was lots of fun. Why are you shaking your head at me? I know, I know. Probably five years or so, I've never been there. But there's a phenomenon that takes place at the end of this thing that I find really intriguing. Okay, you, you come in, uh, in my case, somebody had paid my ticket, so it didn't cost me anything to be there, all right, except a couple hours of time, which was delightful. Had great food. You see, see uh, Robert Dugan today, thank him, he was good stuff. Um, but, uh, so you, you kind of fill out these cards, and, and they got drawings for all kinds of really cool stuff. Uh, trips, fishing trips, and hunting trips, and camping trips, and all kinds of gear and, um, you know. And I found myself at the end of this thing when they're passing all this out. Those of you there know exactly what I'm talking about. When they're passing all this stuff, stuff out, they would read, um, they'd pull a name out of a, out of a look like a chicken bucket. They'd pull a name out of a bucket and say, Walter Northcutt wins this. And Walter comes up. And as Walter goes up there, and by the way, Walter didn't win a thing. I don't even know you were there. Were you there? Okay, sorry. Um... <laughs> But as people went up there, I found, we all found ourselves applauding. How ludicrous. For what? They were getting a gift. One that I would have rather had. Why am I clapping for you? My claps probably meant, oh, that's really nice. I wish it were me. They were graced. They didn't do any more to receive that than I did. Huh. The Bible says that I have been graced. That God pulled my ticket out of the bucket. And he says, Steve Seaton, you've been awarded eternal life. And a righteous life now. And as I go forward to receive it, there's no reason for me to say, hey, check me out. Because I've been graced. 
with the best gift anyone's ever received. It lasts forever. It's irrevocable. All those kinds of things. Receiving this gift is an act of faith. And faith alone. There's nothing I can do to earn it. There's no price I can pay to get it. If there were a price, I couldn't afford it. The wages, what I've earned, the guys receiving those gifts on Tuesday night didn't earn it, okay? What I earned is death, but what I received is life. I think what Paul's saying in 6 and 7, by the way, we'll be in chapter 8 next week. What Paul is saying in chapter 6 and 7 is if since I have received this wonderful, magnanimous gift, this free gift, I probably ought to live accordingly. Ought to live like I've received that gift. Ought to live the rest of my life in gratitude for what I've been given. And I ought, there ought to be a difference in the way I walk and the way that those have not, who have not received the gift walk. Okay, I got through it. Don't send me ugly email, okay? I'm very sensitive. All right. I'll see you next week. We'll be in Romans 8. Thank you.